This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A member of the production team that I happen to know from other walks of life rang me up one day out of the blue and just said, "Um, Fanula, do you think you'd be able to create a language if asked to do so? Uh, That was the first question to which I kind of went, yeah, I think so. And then she just said, well, would you be interested in pitching for a language project? Hello and welcome back to Working. I am your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, whose voice were we just listening to? That was the voice of this week's guest, actor and linguist Fanula Murphy, uh, who recently designed the alien languages for Apple TV's show Foundation. That is so cool. And what do Slate Plus listeners have in store for them this week? So in Slate Plus today, we'll have a little bit more of a personal angle on the conversation with Fanula, focusing on what everyday people can think about when it comes to languages and how they're constructed and how focusing on language can make your life richer. Well, I'm very excited to listen to the Slate Plus segment. So for everyone listening right now, if you are not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. It is $1 for your first month and Slate Plus members get zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus content on our show and other shows like Slow Burn and the Culture Gap Fest, and you get full access to the articles on slate.com so you won't run into that pesky paywall. Last but not least, you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. Again, it's only $1 for your first month, and you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. Now, let's hear Isaac's interview with Fanula Murphy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fanula Murphy, thank you so much for joining us this week on Working. It's lovely to be here to talk to you. So you invented the alien languages for the recent Apple TV adaptation of Isaac Asimov's Foundation. I feel like maybe alien language inventor is a relatively new job in TV production. So could you just tell us a bit about your background, what you studied, how you came to do this? Yeah, I don't know too many other people doing the same thing. And this is actually my first foray into language creation myself. And I think it's probably interesting to just figure out, okay, so how did you get this job in the first place then, if you've never done it before? So I think it's kind of like this job fell out of the ether and onto my lap in a way. And it was a question of really knowing the right person in the right place 
at the right time, I would say. Um, because Foundation was being filmed in Ireland, they had a, a film base in Limerick and they were looking for some local talent. And a member of the production team that I happen to know from other walks of life rang me up one day out of the blue and just said, um, Fanula, do you think you'd be able to create a language if asked to do so? Uh, that was the first question to which I kind of went, oh, yeah, I think so. And then she just said, well, would you be interested in pitching for a language project? And Amazing. It, yeah, so it, it kind of went from there. So at the time, I didn't even know what the TV series was. They didn't give me that information. They just said, look, it's a project. Um, there are two fictional languages. They gave me the names of them. Um, they told me that they'd send me some sample lines. And really, I just put a CV together, sent it on, and they liked what was in the CV. And then it kind of went from there. I was invited to... Um, to make a presentation as to what I thought the languages might sound like. So we should say for people who don't watch the show, the, the two languages are Anacreon and Thespin. And there are these two, uh, I guess, planets in the outer reaches of the galaxy that are nearby each other and have sort of been in an intergenerational or a multi-generational war with one another. Um, so what was the sample stuff that they sent you? Was it lines of dialogue in those languages or was it? Um, no, it was just in English. So they had... Hmm. Like, I didn't see all the scripts at the time. They literally pulled some of the English sentences that they were hoping to use in these languages and, and kind of said, look, take your pick, grab a couple of those, put them into your languages, uh, record an audio sample and send them to us to see if we like them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. So that was so the pitch was essentially you just taking a sh crack at inventing Thespin and Anacreon, translating English into it, recording yourself saying it, and then emailing it to them? I did get to see some of episode one. And so it was a matter of having a look and really reading between the lines of the script, mm. because there were characters from each planet there. Like right. there's a scene in episode one where two ambassadors come to meet Empire and they present these gifts and they described a little bit, you know, what they were wearing and like just kind of gleaning little bits of information from what was there. Um, there was an Anacreon hunting song referenced in that episode. So like that just got me thinking, OK, so this maybe is a planet. If they hunt, they're probably close to the land. Maybe they're interested in nature. They probably have a vocabulary for plants, trees, rocks, animals, that kind of thing. So it was... A little bit of intuition as well, like kind of thrown into the mix. So in my head, I was kind of imagining, OK, maybe this planet has like an oral history where they hand down their stories in person. So mm. they mightn't have so much of a written, you know, history or, or, or tradition. Um, so like I was thinking like, you know, OK, if they have a written system, what would it be? And so I kind of thought maybe it would be just like a simple system, a number or something like that for trading, because I knew they were miners and hunters and that kind of stuff. You're getting all of this from just a few lines in the script <laughs> for the first episode? Absolutely. So this yes. is sort of like, you know, when archaeologists show you a fragment of a Neanderthal skull that's, you know, the size of a postage stamp. And it's like, we know from this they were five foot five and ate a primary <laughs> vegetarian diet or, or whatever. A little bit like that. And then, of course, you, you don't know if you're on the right track either. Right. Like, so, 
you know, so this was me having a little bit of a guess. Um, and at the same time then from Thespis, the other planet, it kind of described what the people were wearing. So they had these long flowing grey robes and they had, they were described as having tattoos. They were presenting a gift of a religious book to Empire. So from that, I was like, I kind of thought, OK, maybe these have a more of an aesthetic ideal. Uh, they probably have a rich written history if like they had the equivalent of a Bible or a Quran or something like that. So, you know, I was thinking scribes and, you know, beautiful illustrations and the fact that they had their own tattoos made me just think, OK, I'm going to go with that more kind of more complex, more lyrical, aesthetic, poetic vibe for planet number two. <laughs> And, and so how do you get from there, you know, this planet has an oral tradition and is close to the land and has a lot of words for plants. And this one has a more sort of lyrical thing. How do you get from that to the actual phonemes, the actual sounds of these languages? I suppose then I was like, I had been given some pointers as to the type of language flavors that they would like oh, right okay. at the very beginning. Can you tell so, us what those were? Yeah, they were quite broad. So I they wanted an Indo-European language base for one of them and they wanted another one to have a kind of Turkic languages influence. So like, where do you go from there? And they, and they were also trying to match it up a little bit with the actors that they were going to cast. So in the end, like the Anacreans, there were a lot of actors with kind of Indian origins. So I went for Hindi as my kind of influence or inspiration or pointer for Anacreon then. And... With Thesbis, I just, like, it, it was Turkish, really, where I kind of, literally, I went on YouTube, because I don't know Turkish or Hindi. Right. <laughs> so, You're not one of the seven languages you speak. No. So what do you do then? So I thought, okay, I'll go on YouTube, I'll have a listen to, you know, just whatever was there. Like, so there was like a soap opera, I think, in one of them, and there were news bulletins and loads of things. But it was more just, okay press and play, let the sounds wash over you, just have a listen to them and see what the cadence is like um, and see if there's anything that I will help me or maybe I can borrow and use a little bit of that. Mm. And then there were other things that kind of dictated the sounds because we, we knew that the Anacreans were going to be like they were fierce warriors. You know, that was kind of the point up for them too. So I thought, okay, let's give these a harder, kind of more harsh punch with their lines so they have much more stronger consonants they have some guttural sounds in there um, whereas I kind of worked the opposite with the other language it was more giving it a kind of softer feel with longer word constructions and just more of a flow to it so it had a, a slower, kind of more luxuriant rhythm, if you like. And were you inventing, uh, I mean, now we're talking about, of course, once you're sort of into the job, you've got the job, you've got the brief of what these languages are. Were you inventing grammar and syntax? as well? Like, did you come up with grammatical rules for these languages? Yeah, because I, I the idea of it, um, when I, and I did get to meet the showrunners and the executive producers, and we kind of mm -hmm. sat down and they said to me, okay, talk me through, what's your language approach here? How are you going to do it? And actually, there was quite a, a short 
turnaround of time too. So it had to be something that we could do, you know, within a few weeks, really get it going um, and start teaching it to the actors straight wait, away. Wait, you had only a few weeks to invent a language, translate the English dialogue into that language and start teaching the <laughs> actors? Well, to get it going, yes. You know what wow. I mean? Because like... I think I came on the job in October 2019 and then within like before Christmas, we, we, we I was working with actors and we were, yeah, we were kind of. <laughs> wow. Asked. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So like my, my kind of in, if you like, was I kind of because I have a background in languages myself. So I had studied Latin and ancient Greek in college. They were the ones I had done. And also um, I speak Irish as well. So those languages, they're quite complex and the grammar structures are, are they're complicated. But in a way, the more languages you kind of work with, the more you see there are patterns again and again that are there. Mm. So like my idea was just, OK, let's work off some known frameworks, some known structures. Uh, you know, if you break down a language, there are nouns, you know, there are you know, words, names for things. And then there are verbs and all the tenses and all that kind of stuff and little words like prepositions and you know, definite, indefinite articles, there and, you know, those kind of things. So let's start there with all those kind of common structures mm -hmm. and then hang the new language and the new sounds off that. Right. Interesting. Because, you know, like even in when it comes to those structures, you know, those basic components might work different ways, you know, like where an adjective is in a romance language in a sentence is in a different place than in English, you know, for example, yeah. or um, English only really has two tenses, right? And then all the rest is modifiers to those, whereas other languages have many, many tenses or the subjunctive mood or, or all of those things that, that English doesn't really have. So were you borrowing from those grammatical structures as well? Or were you trying to sort of make it work functionally the way English works on a sentence level, but with different words? When we sat down, I kind of, I put four different languages out, like with verb samples, just like you're talking about there. And you could see like each verb has a stem, maybe, you know what I mean? And then depending on what language you're looking at, it might be in English, we add all our personal pronouns like I, you, he, she, it before our stem. Mm -hmm. Whereas in another language, it might be part of the verb, but there's like a little marker for the person that's added on to the end. Um, so we talked through a lot of that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, I kind of used that kind of pattern, that idea to kind of invent my two languages. Do they have the same grammatical rules, Anacreon and Thespin, or do they have different ones? They're completely different. Um, so like, <laughs> and, and that was like, it, that was an ask from the part of the producers as well. It was oh, like, okay, okay so there's two languages. How, how are you going to make them sound different? You mm. know, so like, like we were talking about before, like one of them is quite hard. There's like shorter, sharper words in it. And the other one has a much more complex kind of grammatical structure, if mm. you like. Yeah, yeah, totally. So uh, in English, you know, we usually do like a, you know, the basic sentence structure is subject for a predicate, right? You know, I, yeah. I, I go to the store, you know, whatever it is. Um, what is like the basic sentence structure of Anacreon like, for example? Okay. Yeah. So just like you're talking about there. So that would be like a, in English, it's subject, verb, object would be the yeah. way I describe that. So like, and you take those letters. So S-V-O. So in Anacreon, actually, the verb goes first. So if you had a little sentence like, you know, the boy kicks the ball, 
mm-hmm. it would be kicks boy ball. Mm. And then for Thesbis, actually the verb goes on the end, so it's the other way around. It's boy ball kicks. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. And how do like uh, adjectives and adverbs work in the languages? Yeah, so like uh, in Anacreon, the adjective follows the noun. And it's mm. the other way around in, in Thesbin. But actually I did, because I'm, I'm from Ireland and I know Irish and I wanted to kind of get a little bit of a, a cultural nod in there to my own country. I, but the word structure, the word order in Anacreon is actually the same as in the Irish language. Oh, really? Yeah. So like in Irish, you have that verb first. So a lot of the sentences, I actually translated them from English into Irish and then Irish into Anacreon, just to give myself like a little reminder. Okay, so now I know where all these words are going to go. So Anacreon is pulling from Hindi phonemes, Irish grammatical structures. (laughs) Does it have a lot of tenses or is it? It does. It has like past, present, future. It has a conditional. It has a, a subjunctive, present tense. It has participles, you know, passive voice, stuff like that. But actually for both of them, you know, the grammar and the the vocab, all those kind of things grow organically. So as you're building mm. it, you know, you're kind of constructing what you need as you go along. So do you know what I mean? Like I was able right, to start a, a line's written in the passive voice or whatever. And you're like, oh, now I have to invent what passive yes. voice sounds like. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I didn't have to have every single bit of it there um, at the start. I had to have the basics and knowing how I was going to construct the verbs. Have, you know, like four or five tenses there ready to go because you're probably going to have to use them. Right. It's not like Tolkien inventing all of Elvish or whatever <laughs> no. with, a, you know, in an Elvish dictionary before uh, r- while he no. writes The Lord of the Rings. Uh, that's amazing. So, okay. So what about Thespin's uh, tenses and structures and stuff? Okay. So that one... If, uh, did you have to, did you translate it into another language and I then didn't. into Thespin? Or, okay. No, but because it, um, they wanted a bit of a, a, a Turkish, Turkic mm-hmm. influence on this one, I did have have a look at Turkish grammar constructs and, and they're really, really complicated. But I kind of liked some of the things that were in it were aspects that they wanted to have in this language. So they wanted to, at one point, they I, I think they were thinking of having it as like a, a more of a Germanic type influence. And they liked the idea of compound words where you would have a lot of stuff kind of all joined together in a longer word. Yes, we like to joke around about the German word for something is, you know, you know, what's the German word for the feeling of sadness after you've eaten breakfast or, you know, whatever it is, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that's a, yeah. So this would be like, uh, Turkish words happen to have a really long um, construct as well. So you'll have a noun and then like, you'll have the name of something. And then if it's, you know, singular or plural, there'll be a little marker for that. And then if there's um, a pronoun or a possessive or anything like that involved, they just throw them all together. They join them all together into a big long chain and put it in in the word. And the same with the verbs, they do that too. So you'll have about four or five components all in one single word. So I kind of thought, okay, let's use this. This is kind of what we want for this language. It's going to be very complicated. So yes, I'm going to like be inspired by this. Mm. In saying that, again, I have to hold up my hands and say, I don't know Turkish. So I just thought let's like borrow this aspect and now my language is going to be completely different than this I don't know what all the you know the rest of the rules are we'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Fanula Murphy after this 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or to share your own creative triumphs, please drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Fanula Murphy. Clearly, you are able to pick up languages very quickly. Uh, you know, we we made a little bit of a reference to your studying uh, Latin and ancient Greek. You also speak several languages on top of that, right? You're conversant in French, Italian, and Spanish. You speak in English and Irish. You've taught in Irish. Um, when you were a little kid, were you just totally fascinated by languages? Is this something you developed and worked at? You know, how did, how did you come to be sort of so comprehensive in your language I ability? I, I say this know, because I'm terrible at foreign languages. Oh, really? I took Spanish okay. for seven years and I still can't speak, you know, much beyond present and <laughs> past. Yeah, I've always really liked languages. I don't know how or why, but it's just something there. And I remember like when I was still in primary school, my sister's three years older than me and she started learning Latin and I remember she came home with her first homework and it was like a whole load of like a noun getting declined she had to kind of learn this thing mensa 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 it was like a little mantra if you like and she was practicing it but actually I was really fascinated in this and I started learning her own homework myself I just really liked the rhythm of the words Mm -hmm. and I kind of went on to do that myself and I've always kind of been interested in the kind of structure, the grammatical structure of how things fit together. So I don't know, in a way it's like mathematics, if you like, because there's a certain logic to it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where some people would be really good at, at the numbers side of mathematics, I think this is more to do with the kind of, it's like the language of maths, if you like. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, for our listeners who don't know, can you explain what declension is? What declining uh, the, the... Yeah, so like if if you um, have, a, in English, we might ha- have a word like lunch or dinner or something like that. And it just stays the same all the time. You don't do anything with it. You add o- other little pieces of words around it. So if, you, if you're going to say, I'm going to go to dinner or uh, I had vegetables for dinner, you know, that word always stays the same. Whereas in a language like Latin, it will, depending on the kind of where you're going to put the word in a sentence or, you know, how it fits into the sentence, you'll have about six different versions of the same word and you'll add on case endings to it to show what kind of way you're referring to the word. So I guess in Latin, you could mix around, you could change the word structure in the sentence, but because of the endings that you have on the noun, you could figure out what it all meant. Mm. Whereas in English, we really have to kind of keep it as much as we can in, in our word order, you know. 
So you and you also should say, since you mentioned uh, logic and maths, you're also a computer programmer, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I started out doing. So, and they do say like if if you have a language aptitude, you'll probably be good at the programming side mm-hmm. of things, and it's true because they're just languages as well. So, um, okay, you know they are slightly more mathematical and logical, but it, it's really the same thing. You know, I I think it's all part of that one family, and right. I, I know like I have that kind of aptitude for just kind of seeing stuff logically and seeing how it fits together and having a quite a good visual mm-hmm. you know image of that kind of jigsaw of things i guess totally totally that's amazing so you can really see how all of that comes together when you have to invent your own language right that you have this background in languages but you also like you're really focused on the logic of it the way that computer programming and math works and 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 bringing all of that together and then just a few weeks later, you're teaching it to the actors, right? So so what was the process of teaching it to the actors like? Yeah, so in the first meeting that I had with um, the showrunners and the execs, they, they kind of said to me, okay, um, and I had an acting background as well, by the way. So that was another kind of thing that like kind of, I think a combination of a lot of skill sets that I have just worked quite well together for, for yeah. this project. Um, so like I've kind of been in that situation where myself, I remember performing a part in ancient Greek in, in um, when I was in college. And <laughs> I remember the hardest part, well, number one, it was really hard to learn the language because it's just nobody really speaks ancient Greek anymore. So you're just kind of hoping you have all the sounds right and mm-hmm. all that aspect of it. And then not only did I have to learn my own lines, but but then I realized, okay, how am I going to know what my cue is? <laughs> because somebody else, you know, has learned all their bit. So you have to memorize the lines. You have to memorize your cues and know what they're going to sound like. And then you also have to like act it. You have to fill it exactly. with some kind of intention, some idea of what you're trying to do. Yeah. So like in a way, it was great to have that knowledge myself or to, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to look at it from an actor's perspective. You're yeah. trying to keep it as as easy as you can, make their job as easy as possible, if you like, and just figuring out ways to help them to do that. Yeah, so so what were some of those ways? So we had a little um, kind of welcome pack at the very beginning. So if you're an actor and you're coming on foundation and you're told that you're going to be speaking a language, because they didn't always know, like, the, you know, some people only spoke the languages. So, you know, they probably did their audition in English and then found out later on, oh, actually, I'm not going to be speaking any English at all. (laughs) It's all going to be in Anacreon. Um, So we had like this little page where um, I just said hello, introduced myself, outlined some of the basic language features um, that they they were going to meet in this, like say it was Anacreon, like that it was a hard guttural that they were, you know, that it was kind of syllabic. A few mm-hmm. pointers and then gave them a little tiny little sentence like, hello, my name is Cal. I am from Anacreon, like a little tiny thing, um, which was, uh, you know, Bashi Jarad Mahukal Akanakronwu, little thing like that. And then just showed them how they would see this in their language script. So you'd have a line in English and then underneath there would be the line in Anacreon or Thespin. And then I would have a, a phonetic uh, line underneath that just 
to give them a pointer as to how to actually pronounce it. And then underneath that, there was another line that just uh, showed the word order so that if it wasn't quite the way you would see it in English, Mm. they'd be able to link the language to whatever word it meant. So it's sort of like, this is the verb. You know, if you want to stress the verb, this is the word you're stressing or, you know, whatever. Yeah, or just if it was like we were saying, boy kicks ball, something like that. I'd have that underneath so they'd see, oh, the first word is actually Mm -hmm. not what I thought it was. It means this. Got it. And so when you're writing it out phonetically, are you using actual phonetic symbols or are you sort of uh, doing it, you know, in English, but what it might sound like? That's what I was doing, yeah. Yeah, Because I don't think everybody's totally familiar with the international (laughs) phonetic alphabet. Yeah, no, I can't can't read it, so... And I know I did work with it before because I did teach in English as, you know, a, a second language at one point. I did that as just to add to my language madness. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you do deal a lot with, you know, phonetic dictionaries and that kind of thing um, in that sphere. Yeah, I mean, I also have to imagine that the people you're working with have a range of facility with other languages. You know what I mean? Like if you were trying to teach me, like if I was one of the actors, you'd be in big trouble. Uh, 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 (laughs) But what were some of the techniques you used to help people who were maybe struggling a little bit with learning how to speak Thespin or Anacreon? Well, we had language sessions. So for every line of the language, I would do a sample recording and send it to the actors. We, We would, they'd get a chance to listen to it. Then we would like have an in-depth session where we would just pull the lines apart really slowly, taking our time, going through them, talking about what everything meant, what was the intent behind it, all that kind of stuff. And then when we looked at things like phonetics, it worked better for some people than for others. So, for example, um, Kubra, who played um, the character of Farah, so she's from Mumbai. So some of the phonetics would work differently from her because she speaks Hindi. So mm-hmm. she would write out the phonetics, like tweak them a little bit for herself. And other people did that too. So it was more that it was a guide to help them. And then they could kind of use that system for themselves then and just write it whatever way just helped. Like we were trying to be as flexible about it as possible and just work with, you know, people's needs, I guess. Mm-hmm. And were there any adjustments you needed to make to the languages based on notes from the showrunner or the directors? Like, oh, this is actually a little too guttural. I mean, I don't know if that was a note, but, you know, whatever it is that, that yeah. you would then have to make adjustments. Yeah, there were. So, like, even it, at the very beginning, I kind of went off. I was given, I had episode one and two, I think, and I went off and I created the language for uh, whatever was in those episodes and came back in and, and sat down with with everybody again and we kind of talked our way through it and I did adjust it at that point because I had little words for the and an I had definite and indefinite mm. articles for example in Anacreon and there were just too many little words in there so we decided to just cut out the word for the in Anacreon because it just it was just too much stuff for the actors to learn basically we just wanted to kind of simplify it a little bit and make it a bit easier. And there are, there are other languages that don't have the, right? Yeah. I mean, there's none in, in Latin doesn't have right. any definite articles. But then in a language like ancient Greek, it has right. about uh, 12 or th- more. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's amazing. So, so what, what yeah. throughout this process, what was the most challenging part for you? To be honest with you, I absolutely really loved doing it. And right from the very beginning, when I was asked the question, do you think you could do this, you know? 
I just, my inner geek just kind of flipped into action mm-hmm. and I was going, oh my God, I really, really want this job. And I, like, I was so excited at the prospect of doing it. Um, I suppose there were, like, I, I remember at one point, really at the very beginning when they were telling me, look, this language is, we want it to sound a particular way. And like I was saying, I, I don't know um, Indian languages. Like I, ha- I went through about 24 hours of fear <laughs> While I, before I put my audio samples together, mm. thinking, oh, how am I going to do this? Like, How'd you get over that fear? Yeah, I just kind of calmed myself down. I went, look, I, I'm not being asked to create that language. This is a fictional language. Let's, what kind of sounds are there that I want to use? Um, what else would I like to, you know, listen to? So like, there'll be the sounds, maybe the cadence, just small things. I just broke it down into little small steps for mm-hmm. myself. And kind of reminded myself, okay, you know, it's fictional. So we work, we do as we please with it. You know, like let your imagination work here with you as opposed to against you. And it was actually fine. Then. That's great. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, do you feel like, you know, this is your first time doing this and you said you love doing it. Do you feel like you've sort of like not found a calling? That's maybe putting it too much, but it's like, hey, I found this thing that I really love to do and I really want to keep doing it. Yeah, in a way, I kind of, it felt like, oh my God, everything, like every career that I have done up to this point has all just melded together mm-hmm. and just fallen into place in this one project. That's amazing. Um, I really had that feeling about it. And now you can speak these two languages that no one else can. You can, you know, order your bread in Thespin or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. And they are teachable. Like, like the thing about it was, let's make these languages teachable. Right. So, you know, like they are, like if, if somebody wanted to learn them, there's a way of doing it. You know what I mean? So it was never just going to be like random collection of sounds put together. There had to be more than that. And that was really important for the actors too. And that kind of fed into the process of just as I was saying, when we were at those sessions, mm-hmm. we'd kind of talk about, okay, look at the sentence. What are the words that are, you really need um, to, to stress? You know, what are the most important aspects? And then we worked on things like just when they were going out there and they were delivering the lines that it was really important that they didn't let the ball drop, that they had to have 100% energy there. Mm-hmm. They had to listen to the other person and just pick up off the tone and the intent of what the other person was saying. Because I think if you don't do that, it's just going to sound like just a random like collection of gobbledygook or something. And we didn't want that. It was, you know, it was really important that they meant what they were saying. Yeah, totally, totally. Um so not to put you on the spot, but you did say it's a teachable language. Could you like teach me a sentence of Thespin of how to say something in Thespin? Like maybe even just hello, my name is Isaac or something in, in, in Thespin? Absolutely. So the word in Thespin for hello is Shalin. Shalin. Yeah. So you, if you're talking to me, it's Shalin Fanula, or I'd say Shalin Isaac to you. Uh-huh. So my name is, so that's Veriv. Veriv. So, yeah. And then your name. Uh, Shal- so Shalin Fanula, Veriv yeah. Isaac. Yeah, exactly. And then in our little language intro, we had like, I come from wherever. So we had Thesbizve uh-huh. Ashiriv. Thesbizve Ashiriv, which means I come from Thespis? Yeah. So I would say now I come from Dublin. So Dublinve Ashiriv is me. And we're, you know. Right. Just, uh, Brooklyn uh, Ve. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Amazing, amazing. As an alien <laughs> hipster, Brooklyn Bay, that's incredible. <laughs> Fanula Murphy, this has been a real treat. Thank you so much for coming on Working and sharing your process with us. It's been really enjoyable for me too. Thanks so much, Isaac. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I feel like this is really only barely related to the conversation that you guys had, but being able to make up an entire functioning language is just so cool, especially because I think it's the kind of thing that we all try to do when we're kids or teens. Like the closest that I got, I think, was memorizing the code that Brian Jacques made up for Moss Flower, one of the Redwall books, and like learning like a little Tolkien Elvish. I was about to ask, come on, come on, you learned some (laughs) Elvish. You had like an English Elvish dictionary. I know you well enough. You had one of those as a kid, right? Well, I didn't have a physical one, but I did definitely do a lot of Google research on mm. my dial-up internet being like, what can I learn from <laughs> of Elvish on the internet? I'm sure there's a lot more stuff out there now. And I feel like after this episode, I'll immediately like go on Google and try to find an actual book to maybe commit to this for 2022. Not one of my resolutions, so please don't hold me to this. Anyway, Isaac, I'm curious if you ever did anything like that, whether as a child or now as an adult. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to echo that I just think this is like the coolest job designing alien languages, which is why I wanted to find someone to talk to about it because I just it's so great. Right. Mm -hmm. And part of it's that I just know there's no way I could do it. Although I do enjoy (laughs) linguistics. I took linguistics in graduate school. I Uh I think you can tell from the interview. I find it really fascinating. I also enjoy codes and puzzles and things like that, but I'm really bad at them. (laughs) But, you know, um, Stephen Sondheim, who himself 
loved puzzles and designed puzzles had this whole thing about how like you either have the kind of brain that can immediately see a word as a collection of sounds and letters or you don't, you mm-hmm. know, and he really had that brain and I really do not have that brain. Um, and I also wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that Fanula says that this is an opportunity that kind of just fell into her lap, which I feel is so rare, number one, for something that you're excited about to come to you that way, and also something this cool <laughs> to come to you that way. Um, I'm curious if this has ever happened to you, or kind of jumping off of the question, if you like it when it happens to you, or if you rather have more control over the projects that you end up working on. Well, I can think of two. One is not an artistic project necessarily, but I I think you may recall in an earlier episode, I mentioned that for a while I worked for an anti-discrimination think tank. And that was something where literally, you know, like a friend of mine needed some writing help with a white paper they were doing. And Mm -hmm. then the organization, which was sort of a, a temporary organization that did that white paper turned into a permanent organization, which was a think tank and they needed someone to do their writing. And I wound up doing writing and research for them for a couple of years, which is a really wonderful, uh, life-changing experience. But Mm -hmm. the funnier one is that the day after I got into graduate school for writing, so literally I, you know, got the phone call that I had gotten in and I hung up Mm -hmm. and I sort of half jokingly said to Anne, I'll never direct again. (laughs) And then the next day, one of my best friends called me and hired me to direct a show that he was making at the Brooklyn Academy of Music's Next Wave Festival, which was literally a lifelong dream of mine since I was a child that I would make something for the band Next Wave. And so when the world serves you up something like that, of course you have to take it, you know? But the lesson, if there is one within this, is that you know, make friends with people who are making interesting work. I, even outside of networking, it's like, forget about the networking because you can't control what's going to come of that. But like, if you admire someone's work, like get to know them, become their friend, you know, like you never know what's going to come out of that. But one of the things that will come out of that is that you'll have a richer life surrounded by more interesting people. Mm-hmm. I have a footnote to that though, which I feel like it's a tough line to straddle, especially at least from my experience in media, where it's like there's people that I think approach me about my work because I do think they're genuinely interested and very earnest about it. And then there are people who approach me about my work because they think they can climb the ladder in some way by doing that, which is the worst, like one of my least favorite traits in anyone, that kind of um, social climbing. It's awful. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems with the arts and making a life in the arts, and I include media in this, is that there's a way in which because you're you're often friends with the people you're working with or you work with mm-hmm. people for a long time and you become friendly with them, it can become very unclear whether relationships are professional or personal. It become really unclear whether you're using someone or you're sincerely interested in them and you know, it it, it can get very complicated and thorny. I do not recommend going out and becoming friends with someone because you want them to help you. Your career. I think they'll, they almost always can see through it. I think uh, they're, they're not going to respect you for it or whatever. But I do think if you think someone is interesting uh, uh, and you have the opportunity to socially get to know them, it's, it, it can be a rewarding experience. Yeah. Use your common sense. Just use, use your, your common, common sense. sense. <laughs> and decency. Be a decent yeah. human being. But one of the things that I really loved from the conversation was Fanula talking about finding patterns in languages, because I feel like I've only experienced this to a much lesser degree, like having grown up learning Korean and then learning Japanese in high school, I can sort of see like where the patterns were between those two languages. Um, And I'm curious if you think that translates to any of the fields that you've worked in. Like, do you start to find patterns in putting together theater pieces or writing books or in your own life or anything like that? 
Yeah, totally. I mean, I think our minds are kind of built to find patterns and to Mm -hmm. create structures for things or to impose them even where they don't belong. And this can go really far awry. And then you have like QAnon or whatever. But, you know, we we (laughs) do want to take the stars in the sky and see constellations in them, you know, and a lot of the creative impulse is actually seeing all of these disparate pieces whether it's from the research you've done or ideas or song lyrics or whatever it is, and mm-hmm. then beginning to knit those things together. That's actually one of the great pleasures of the act of creation. And mm-hmm. I think it can be one of the great pleasures of um, the act of reading or, or seeing or listening to something that you see these different things and then they all, they all come together. Mm-hmm. In my latest book while writing it, trying to find those patterns was actually really important um, because, you know, it's a 400-page book. It takes place over 100 years. There's a couple dozen characters. You know, the more patterns you can create to help the reader remember what's going on and to kind mm-hmm. of keep track of everything, the better. And also, I think whether it's a dramatic moment or a joke, callbacks are just very satisfying. Yeah, I mean, we love it when it happens in, like, improv and stuff, where yeah. it's something that they pass off in the beginning comes back at the end. It's always so much fun. Totally. I also found the language lessons that Fanula talked about, the, I thought they sounded really nice, like because they get those initial tapes and then they get to work on it kind of more thoroughly with her, um, especially with regard to like finding out what method of learning works for each person, because it is different for everyone. And I wanted to ask you how you prefer to learn and kind of on the flip side, if you consider yourself a good or adaptive teacher. Huh. Well, you know, I did take one of those bubble tests when I was a teenager that said I'm an auditory learner. I, I don't oh. I don't really know. I do like to kind of learn subject matters from like as many angles at the same time as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's, it might be a biography and then it might be a cultural history. It might be a sound recording or, you know, I want to read what the people were reading in real life, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I try to learn from in as many different ways as possible. Um, teaching is so hard. I thought it would be so much easier when I started doing it around a decade ago, because when you do guest teaching gigs, everyone loves you and they listen to you with rapt (laughs) attention and they applaud when it's done. And, you know, everyone pays you compliment. It's very gratifying. But actually teaching a coherent class where each Mm -hmm. week builds on the last and builds towards something and you're holding the students to account with rigor, but you're also being generous to them and you're nurturing them. It is so much harder than anyone thinks before they do it. And I've had to do a lot of adaptation this year because of the pandemic. My freshmen missed the last two years of high school, really. And those are the years that train you how to be a college student. And they, and everyone else, including me, are all traumatized by what we've all been through. And then on top of that, um, the school I, I work at, you know, everyone had to get vaccinated. Everyone has to get tested. But there were also, you know, the test could have a false positive and the student would be locked out mm-hmm. of the building and couldn't come to class or whatever. Or if they had a cold, they couldn't come, you know, if you have any symptoms at all. And so you just never knew actually how many students you were going to have or who they were going to be from week to week. Um, and so I had to do a lot of adapting, a lot of changing the syllabus at the last moment, assigning yeah. new readings, going remote for a week because that's what we needed to do. And mm-hmm. it, it was one of the most difficult professional experiences in my life honestly yeah it sounds so stressful and uh, I mean I feel like we say this a lot in general in the world but teachers should get paid more um, indeed <laughs> uh, to come particularly back to- adjuncts at the university arts level <laughs> no, uh, particularly me particularly personally. me yeah exactly <laughs> Um, I I also really deeply felt for Fanula when she was talking about feeling this really deep fear about creating these new languages because I think 
kind of to take a step back from it with like my personal experience with showing people my creative work it's the worst like I never want to show anyone a script that I've written until like I think it's perfect which is kind of a stage that you'll never really get to you know it's never perfect but I don't want to show anyone my works in progress like I don't want anyone to see what I think could be like I don't want anyone to tell me that they don't like it (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, and I, I think like all creatives have felt this in some respect. And I really loved what she said about getting over it, too. But I think that was not necessarily advice that's applicable to all situations. So I wanted to ask you, Isaac, how you get over that kind of feeling or if you experience it at all. I experience it all the time. I mean, <laughs> you know, maybe it's a different experience for you. But like even when I write a freelance piece, when I get the email back with the editor's notes, there is a moment before I click on the draft <laughs> to see the track changes, right? Yeah. Where my heart like stops, you know, <laughs> like it happens, it happens every time. And I used to have a thing where I'd sort of pace around for a bit and be like, yeah. okay, what are we going to do? We're going to get ready for it. We're going <laughs> to drink some egg yolks and punch a side of beef in a freezer and yeah. run up some steps. And then we're going to look at it. And now I'm just like, I've done it enough times. I'm yeah. just like, just open it. Like who cares? Just open it. It's just a, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's really been my experience. It is, mm-hmm. it gets much easier when you trust the collaborator, you know, yeah. like when Ben Hyman, the editor of The Method, would send me notes on the draft. Like, I know Ben's on my side. I know he mm-hmm. wants the book to be the best it can be. And so, like, I know he likes my writing. He just, you know, he, he, uh, he gave me all this money to make this book. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, that makes it a lot easier. You know, when I'm working with one of the editors at Slate, like, I know all of them. That makes it a lot mm-hmm. easier. But when it's a first time with a collaborator, it's very hard. And since I both write and direct or write and teach and, and stuff like that, when I'm on the other side of it, I really do try to keep that in mind and really try to be as sensitive about like it's scary and even when you think a work is done it's very it makes you feel very vulnerable to show it to people yeah I will say though the thing that I think I've ultimately found kind of more easier about culture writing is that there is someone there dedicated to supporting your work like having an editor is like really really uh, is a very different feeling to me than, for instance, sending my sample scripts to a representative at totally. a production company. Because it's like they're not going to come back and be like, oh, I think you could do this. It's just like yes or no most of the yep. time. Um, anyway, I also wanted to ask, this might come as a bit of a uh, surprise, but how many languages do you speak? You mentioned that you are terrible at foreign languages despite having studied Spanish for years. Does that mean that Spanish was a no-go? Oh my God, I'm so terrible at it. Uh, I have tried so many times and every time I get up to the subjunctive and then my brain is just like, fuck this. And uh, that's that's the end of it. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know. I speak English very well. I have a really good vocabulary. I understand sentence structure on a pretty innate level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's something about it where like other languages, I just get completely blocked. I'm so embarrassed about it frankly i mean i really think that it's like a character flaw or something you know because (laughs) as we become more global we need to speak more languages you know like i live in new york city i should speak one (laughs) other language i mean come on now you mentioned yeah speaking korean and japanese how many languages do you speak 
I really only speak Korean besides English. Like I have conversational fluency in Korean because I grew up learning it like from my parents, but my mm-hmm. reading and writing, I would say is pretty slow. I took Japanese in high school and learning it was definitely easier for me than for my other classmates because there are a lot of kind of grammatical similarities between the languages and even like some of the words kind of translate pretty similarly. Um, that said, I really don't remember that much of it. So I would not ever tell anyone that I could speak Japanese. <laughs> right. Got it. So for you, you know, part of the 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 bilingualism is just having grown up speaking it in your home. Exactly. And, yeah. You know, being taught it from a very early age. But I will say, like, for instance, like my partner just started trying to learn. He he just started taking Korean lessons, and one of the things that we sort of talked about, like with regard to learning different languages is some of the different languages require you to be able to produce different sounds than you're used to in your language, which you might not be able to if it's not something that you grew up doing. Like it's just right. not something that your muscles are accustomed to or can do, which I feel like is something that tends to discourage people because if you can't make it sound right, then you end up feeling like a little more self-conscious about it, et cetera. So I don't know. It's it's a complicated subject, I think. Totally. And to wrap up, I'm curious if you remember any of the Thespin that you learned while talking to Fanula. I wish, I wish. Uh, no, the interview was conducted before the holiday. And so okay. all the like trying to travel and see my family during Omicron and uh, keeping So you weren't greeting them in Thespin? No, I was not. I was not doing it. But I will say <laughs> that June and I... Uh, do like to address each other in the fake uh, belter patois from the expanse. Oh. That, that is a thing that we sometimes do. So, you know, that that I do have some some knowledge of. I didn't know June was an expanse head. I think she is. I think she is. She's a real beltadloda. <laughs> All right, that is our show for this week. And if you enjoyed it, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you will never miss an episode. And now let me tell you how awesome a Slate Plus membership is. It's awesome. It's it's so good. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to all the articles on Slate.com, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and How to Do It, and it's only $1 for the first month. Thanks to this week's guest, Fanula Murphy, and thanks as ever to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with young adult author Melinda Lowe. Until then, get back to work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.